Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 313 of Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300, releasing on November 1st. Uh, appreciate you being here. Uh, we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did putting it together here with Sarah Archer today, my co-host. Uh, Hannah LaRue is still on maternity leave. Uh, she's going to be dropping in from time to time. Hello, Hannah, if you're listening. Uh, but we also have, again today, for the third episode in a row, we have Mark West uh, riding shotgun with us. Mark, glad to have you again. My pleasure. It's, yeah. been, uh, it's been fun. Yeah. So uh, in today's episode, listeners, uh, we've got a fun lineup. We've got a feature with uh, New York Times bestselling author Charlie Lovett uh, in his recent novel, The Enigma Fear. It's a fast-paced thriller that harkens back to code-breaking secrets in World War II. Yeah, and we're also going to be talking about a community blog post by Cara Bertrovia called When You Think You Know Everything, Think Again, which is about how others can help make a manuscript better and other things she learned publishing her novel. Yeah, and since we're, um, you know, at the start of the month here, we're going to share with you um, again the uh, Charlotte Litt uh, November lineup. Uh, so let's hear what's going on there. Hi, this is Paul Rialli with Charlotte Lit. Thanks to Charlotte Readers Podcast for inviting me on to talk about our November 2022 programming. In classes this month, we have something for everyone. In multi-genre, we have Irene Blair Honeycutt with Writing Nature, Trees as Muse, which will explore a variety of writing about trees and use them as prompts for our own writing. In nonfiction, Megan Madaffrey leads Writing Observation and Delight, a nonfiction writing class grounded in careful observation of the world based on Ross Gay's The Book of Delights. In fiction, Kristen Sherman leads Crafting Better Sentences, really designed for those who are in revision who are trying to sharpen up their sentences. In poetry, Aaron Rose Coffin leads A Poetic Introduction to Poetry, which is a great place to begin if you would like to be a better reader of poetry and to get started in writing. And finally, the podcast's own Landis Wade leads Both Sides of the Mic, How to Nail the Author Interview. Landis has been in the chair from both sides, and I know we'll have some great perspective on how to promote your book from whichever chair you find yourself in. Finally, I'd like to tell you about a new offering at Charlotte Lit. It's called Poetry Nightclub. Four times a year, we're going to bring in an acclaimed poet to Charlotte and set them up in a really funky setting. Starlight on 22nd in Noda. They'll be reading from their work, talking about their work, and having a conversation with the community. 
We hope you'll join us for some of these programs. You can learn more at charlottelit.org. Okay, a lot going on at Charlotte. And um, just one of this thing I'm doing with them on, in terms of uh, both sides of the mic, one thing we'll be talking about is kind of the invitation we have uh, for writers uh, who want to get some publicity for their work. It's our elevator pitch. Go to our website, uh, the contact page, click on elevator pitch. You can leave us a audio message, uh, pitching your book in 30 seconds. It is not as easy as you might think uh, to boil down those uh, 300 pages to, uh, to 30 seconds, but it's a must. Think about something that, uh, you know, your book relates to pull out a theme or something interesting that ties back to, uh, something that listeners can relate to, uh, what's it like, what's it compared to, you know, and, uh, give us, uh, do something with that and, and have fun with it. Uh, so what do y'all think? Elevator pitches, they're not easy, are they? They're not easy, but they're essential. And, and coming up with an elevator pitch for something like this, I think is great practice because if you are intending to publish your book at some point, if you're writing query letters, you're going to have to put a synopsis in there. Um, if you're writing a, a synopsis for the back cover, it's going to have to be about that length. Even just if you have a book that's out there in the world, anytime you encounter someone who's like, oh, hey, what's your book about? You have to be able to tell them quickly. So it helps to have something kind of prepared for that. It's tricky sometimes in these elevator pitches to try to summarize in three minutes or whatever uh, uh, an entire plot. I don't even think it's worth trying to do that. I think it's better to talk about what the story's about in terms of the ideas, the characters, the the the, the world that the story is set in, um, uh, rather than say, then this character quickly did this, and then this character did that, and this character did this, and after a while, you just have no idea what the person's talking about. Um, <laughs> But um, so if I were to try to make an elevator pitch for deadly declarations, I wouldn't say, and then this person, this person's wife died, and then he had to go over to the retirement (laughs) community, and then he met this person, and they were in a conflict with their neighbors, and then they tried to do this, and then you say, you know, so it's set in a retirement community, and it deals with this conflict over the uh, authenticity of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and um, talk a little bit about that and a little bit about the characters rather than try to summarize the plot. Yeah, or if you do what uh, one of my uh, blurbers, uh, Tracy Clark, she's a Chicago mystery writer, she said, if uh, National Treasure and the firm had a book baby, it would be Deadly Declarations. So it just gives you an idea. There's a venture story in there. There's a little bit of a, a legal thriller in there. You know, if you can kind of boil it down to something, yeah, it's fun and Sir, did you ever have to do that with your romantic comedy, boil it down to like 30 seconds? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was uh, querying agents, I had to you know, write something in a query letter. And I did the same thing that Mark is kind of talking about, where you, you sort of give the basic premise, but you don't really give the whole plot or story. You just want to do enough to sort of give people an idea of what the reading experience might be like, who are these characters are going to be spending time with, what's the tone. Um, and especially since for that book, it was a comedy, um, I tried to put some humor into the actual synopsis or summary so if you can find a way to fit some humor into your elevator pitch if that's relevant for the tone of the book i think that's great just a way to kind of communicate to people what they're in for if they read this book yeah and keep in mind too that uh, there's a difference in an elevator pitch and a synopsis that goes on the back of the book the synopsis might be two paragraphs with a header of some kind and then you got a couple of book blurbs, and those are going to add up to more than 30 seconds if you read them. So you really have to hone it down to you know, almost a couple of catchy faults, you know, because mm-hmm. if, if, have you ever been talking to an author and they're talking to tell you about their book and 
four minutes later, your eyes roll back in your head <laughs> and you're wondering, what what is this book about? You know, so it's really about trying to let people know um, what your book's about. And they can quickly, they can pretty quickly decide if that's a book that they might like to read, you know, um, and they can let you know that. So, uh, yeah, so uh, a lot of good stuff at Charlotte Lit, and I look forward to having fun doing that. Let's uh, look at the uh, Charlotte Writers Club lineup. Uh, this is November 1st, so what's coming in November? This is Dave Collins, president of the Charlotte Writers Club, reaching out to you with an invitation to join us for a meeting. Maybe two, maybe long term. We'd like that. The club meets on the third Tuesday of each month at the Tivola Senior Center. Some months we gather to listen to a craft talk from an accomplished writer. Other months our speaker is a publicist or an agent, someone who knows the book business and can help our writers market their work. Anything likely to make life easier for our members is likely to come up sooner or later. Our meetings begin at 6.30 p.m., though most of us try to arrive a few minutes earlier to talk stories. Whatever you're writing, poetry, short stories, personal essays, a novel, a memoir, screenplays, or plays for the stage, we have people in the Charlotte Writers Club doing the same thing. Our speaker on November 15th is Landis Wade. You know him as the long-term host, more than 300 episodes now, of the Charlotte Readers Podcast. I think of Landis as a member of the CWC, the man who arranged our speakers for several years. And of course, as a novelist whose most recent offering, Deadly Declarations, tells the story of three quirky retirees who go to work solving mysteries and putting the bad guys in their place. But on the 15th, Landis isn't going to talk about writing. He's going instead to draw on his experience marketing four books, on the difference between building a platform and book selling. It's all there in the title of his talk, All the Book Marketing I Did Not Know and Other Tips for Launching and Marketing Your Novel. Our meetings are open to all, and we hope you'll join us. For more information about CWC's programming, visit our website, charlottewritersclub.org. Uh, well, I guess that's all my community, uh, my, my host news and those two blurbs. <laughs> that's what I'll be busy doing in November. And it's interesting, we were talking about the elevator pitches. I think Dave Collins sort of narrowed my book down in like one slice, probably as, as well as you could, three retirees who go about Quirky retirees go about solving mysteries, you know. So, yeah, um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm going to be busy doing. That's my host news. I won't I won't belabor any of that. Uh, Sarah, what's your host news around the November first time frame? So, in early November, I'm going to be going to New York, um, visiting some friends up there, seeing some writers, and I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to be working on writing wise at that point because I I don't know where I'll be with this romantic comedy feature that I'm developing in terms of their the studio's process. Um, I do have a pilot that I I wrote earlier this year that I have been talking with the same production company about doing something with, so we might at that point have moved on to maybe doing some notes on that. So we'll see. But I'm sure oh, I'll be doing great. something. And you and I will be recording some more episodes about that mm-hmm. time frame as well. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark, what's uh, what's on your uh, radar about that time? Well, you know, in November, we will have uh, First and Vino here in Charlotte. First and Vino is a, a, a gigantic, uh, wonderful uh, event sponsored by the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library Foundation, which is. Uh, arm of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Um, and uh, they're, we're meeting 
uh, live this year. So it's a big celebratory event, uh, as you might expect, with the word vino involved. It might involve something to do with wine. Um, but I'm planning to go to uh, the event with my wife. And um, so I'm looking forward to that and hearing the authors. If you've never been to Verse and Vino, well, it costs a little bit of money, but the money yeah, goes to supporting the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. So it's money well spent. And um, it should be a fun evening. So I'm um, looking forward to doing that in November and uh, hearing from the authors and, and just uh, being around other people who, who care about uh, literature. So that's on my agenda. Of course, uh, shortly before Verse and Vino, there's Epic Fest, which is uh, an event for children uh, at Imaginon. And I'm on the steering committee for that. So I'll be actually working Epic Fest. They give me a weird title at Epic Fest. They call me an uh, author wrangler. Um, which sounds something like I come, grew up in the West. It sounds like somebody would be, you know, rounding up cattle or something. But, um, but one of the things that I do at Epic Fest is just to make sure that the authors go where they're supposed to go and sign the books when, where they're supposed to sign them and make way for the next batch of authors uh, in accordance with the uh, time that has been set aside. One of the things I've been gifted with is uh, a sense of time. I usually know what time it is. So uh, I have found that many authors have have no such sense. Um, they have no idea that they've been talking for 45 minutes um, because they're just caught up in it. So um, uh, my job is to make sure that they stay on the schedule. Yeah, and you mentioned this in an earlier episode. So um, we're where people can learn more, where do they go? Uh, is there a website? Or? Yeah, if they just go to the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library website, it's all over the place. Um, okay. uh, so it's easy to find information about it. The two events are called Verse and Vino. That's for, gr for growing ups, as I call them. Yeah. <laughs> Adults, as you call them. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, that uh, is uh, kind of like almost like a gala. It's, 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 they pull out all the stops for that. And Epic Fest um, will take place at Imaginon, uh, which is uh, a wonderful place on 7th Street. So um, they're both downtown or uptown, center city, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it. Mm -hmm. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, we're about to jump into our book recommendations, but uh, first a word from Libra. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, we're in the book recommendation section. Uh, Mark, since you're co-hosting, you get to go first. All righty. Well, I'm going to recommend a book I just discovered called Outside the Wire. Uh a novel of murder, love, and war by a new Charlotte writer named Gary Edgington. Gary spent most of his life in California, but he and his uh, family have moved to Charlotte, and he has really reoriented his life from being a counterterrorism uh, police officer and investigator and detective to uh, retiring from all of that and becoming now a writer. Um, he spent a number of years in uh, some time in Baghdad as part of the a war there. And uh, Outside the Wire is based on his experiences in Baghdad. Um, this is a uh, war novel. Uh, you, uh, in the very first pages of the book, you're right there. You're right there in the middle of the uh, 
of the action. Uh, it that was a complicated war, and it's hard to know who the good guys and who the bad guys are. Um, but uh, he does a really good job of writing from his own experience uh, as a uh, counterterrorism uh, expert, um, but as also a participant uh, in in this uh, uh, this this war. It is a war story, um, and um, war stories aren't for everybody's taste. Uh, but boy, sure, full of action, uh, and it. Um, uh, when you consider this is a first novel from somebody who never really thought of himself as a writer before, it's an impressive debut. Yeah, we're going to um, hope to get uh, him on the podcast at some point uh, and met him for the first time at the Charlotte Writers Club recently. Uh, nice to have more uh, debut authors uh, putting putting good content out there. Sarah, what do you have? Um, so today I'm recommending something that's a little bit different for me. Normally I, I read mostly fiction, but this is nonfiction. It's called Into the Raging Sea by Rachel Slade, who's a journalist. Um, and it's about the sinking of this ship called the El Faro, which um, happened several years ago. I think it was the largest U.S. maritime disaster of the last 50 years or so. Um, it came to my attention because I have a, a family connection to the crew on the ship. Um, but it the book is, is really fascinating. It's an interesting reconstruction of what happened in those kind of days and hours on that ship's last journey and kind of piecing things together from the records that they were able to pull from the ship and looking at the decision-making of the people in charge and, and how something like this could happen and the impact on the people connected to the disaster. Um, definitely not light reading. It's it's kind of harrowing, but it's it's really interesting to read. And there's a lot of implications for you know how people work in groups and why we do the things we do. And, um, yeah, I just found it really fascinating. And I think the author, Rachel Slade, did a really, really wonderful job of pulling together all this information and putting it into a way that's meaningful and that's also, you know, sensitive to the people involved. Um, so, yeah, I recommend that book for sure. That's great. And uh, I've got a couple of recommendations uh, of some series. Uh, and because we've had to recommend, like, uh, since we've recorded about six episodes <laughs> in two days, I had to go back to some previous reading here. But, uh uh, two series, uh, one uh, by Vince Flynn. Unfortunately, he died young at age 47, but he was very prolific. He created the uh, fictional assassin character Mitch Rapp, who's an undercover CIA counterterrorism agent. His books are political thrillers. They're interesting. Uh, he went interesting from self-published author to New York Times bestselling author. So all of you out there that want to go from self-published, he's a good a uh, good example of that. The books are still being written now by Kyle Mills for the Vince Flynn estate. Uh, and he's also a New York Times bestselling author. It's just it's very f- fast action, um, uh, a lot of fun. If you want to go underwater, um, I've got lots of books on my shelves uh, over the years or in my attic or wherever I store books. <laughs> Clive Cussler, author of The Dirt Pit and other under-the-sea thriller novels. He died in 2020. 88 years old, and he left behind more than 50 novels. Uh, they're fun books, uh, including the best-selling Dirk Pitt series. He's also written, speaking of what you were talking about, Sarah, he's also written some nonfiction books related to uh, maritime uh, adventures and, and tragedies and so forth. But uh, just a very uh, fun. Uh, so if, you, if, you, if you're the kind of you know writer that likes to immerse yourself in uh, series reading, uh, those are a couple couple to think about. Um, so now we'll turn to uh, Alyssa Pressler from That's Novel Books with her suggestion for the week. 
Hi everyone, it's Alyssa with That's Novel Books here uh, to give you all another recommendation of a book that I just recently read. And today I want to challenge y'all to maybe revisit a classic that you read in high school or when you were younger. I recently did this with The Call of the Wild by Jack London. I did not fully appreciate in high school the um, writing his concept of telling an entire story from a dog's perspective and what that might look like. It was a really fascinating read and it is an inspiring writer. It was um, just a book I really enjoyed getting into again. So if you haven't read The Call of the Wild before or um, haven't read it in a while, I would say pick it up or take a look at some other classics you enjoyed when you were younger and see if you can get some new insights from them. Thanks so much and be sure to visit us at Camp North End. All right, that's our book recommendations for the week. Uh, listeners know that uh, you can make recommendations as well in an audio form. Just go to our website uh, on the contact page. There's a place there for listener feedback, and uh, that feedback can be in the form of a book recommendation. Or you might have a one- to two-minute uh, tip you'd like to share or uh, maybe just a question for the host. But uh, go there and uh, uh, engage with us. Uh, we look forward to it. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, we're in Act 2. We've got an author feature here. Uh, the author is Charlie Lovett. Uh, he's been on the podcast before. He resides in the uh, North Carolina area. He's written a book called The Enigma Affair. I did a fun interview with him we're going to share in just a moment. Uh, Sarah, if you'll tell us a little bit about uh, Charlie, I'll tell a little bit about the book. Yeah, so um, Charlie is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written five novels and numerous works of nonfiction. He's also an award-winning playwright. Um, his plays for children have been seen in over 5,000 productions worldwide over the past 20 years. He is an expert on Lewis Carroll, um, and he most recently wrote Lewis Carroll, Foreign by Faith, which is a religious biography of Lewis Carroll. Um, some other recent works of his are The Book of the Seven Spells, which is a middle grade adventure, and the upcoming premiere of his stage adaptation of A Christmas Carol. So he's got a lot going on, definitely a talented person. Yeah, and this book, um, you know, it, it's it's World War II, and they pull in some of the Nazi regime in it, but it's it's got a clever uh, twist to it because it relates to the— uh, you know, the Enigma machine, which, uh, you know, the Nazis used uh, for their codes and sending their secret codes and so forth. And, the, and, and you may know something about this, but the British broke that code. Um, and there were, um, but there were lots of messages left over from, and Charlie tells me this in the interview, that uh, were left over from uh, the war that never got uh, decrypted. Um, and... He thought to himself as a novelist, well, that would be interesting. What if what if that happened and you decrypted a message and it told you something that might relate to the future? Anyway, so uh, Publishers Weekly says it's rollicking. The pages fly by. The prose mashup of National Treasure and Indiana Jones' fun escapist fair. And that's what it says. It's a fast read. Uh, you do have that feeling of uh, being on a hunt, and you do have that sort of feeling because you're uh, dealing with the past and the future and uh, 
finding out uh, secrets. Uh, so let's uh, let's listen in to, uh, to the interview with uh, Charlie Lovett. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back. Uh, last time we talked uh, on the podcast, gosh, a couple of years ago, we had you on for the uh, for the novel Dreamland, which uh, explored 20th century New York and the book world and early children's books. And now we got a fast-paced thriller, not the same kind of thing. No, it's a different kind of book. I, I thought it would be fun to, to really write sort of a traditional thriller where the, the protagonist is, you know, in mortal peril in the first sentence. and. <laughs> It, the roller coaster starts from there, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun to put together. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that because that's not what you've traditionally written over the years. I mean, you've done a lot of literary fiction. You've gotten back into antiquarian books. You've done a, a lot of literature-based uh, novels, and this one is just uh, one big explosion from the beginning to the end. It is, although, you know, the main character is a librarian, and there's yep. certainly some rare book uh clues along the way that have to be deciphered um they they visit uh, a fantastic library in prague uh, that i was really keen to have be part of this book so i think you know some of those underlying themes are still there uh but uh i first got interested in in the background for this novel when i when i met a woman named mavis Beatty who had been a code breaker at bletchley park during the second world war uh, we became friends and I didn't really know that much about what she did and cause she wasn't allowed to talk about it or wasn't supposed to talk about it. And, um, after she died, I found out what an important figure she had been in, in breaking that enigma code and got sort of fascinated by everything that had gone on at Bletchley park. And, and, and we went to visit there one time and, uh, one of the docents said, you know, we have thousands of German messages uh, from the later parts of the war here in our archives that have still never been decrypted. And I just thought that was fascinating. So I thought, well, what if you had a modern character who, who had one of those messages and for whatever reason uh, needed to decrypt it? And that's kind of where the where the story began. Yeah, we, there, there's just a lot in what you just said there that I want, I want to ask about. But it, I think you answered one of my questions. Where did the inspiration come from for, for this uh, message that had not been decrypted yet from the Germans? Uh, that's really a thing. Yeah, I right? mean, and when when a when somebody says that something, when you're on a tour and your tour guide says something <laughs> like that, if you're a tourist, you go, "Oh, well, that's very interesting." But if you're a novelist, yeah. you go, "Ooh, wow, that's a great opportunity." Uh, that's like a bit. That's a big what if. That's right? a big Just what if. Now you still have to find a reason to make this message relevant in 2015 when when the book is set. Uh, so that you know that required some leaps of imagination, but but that the initial idea of somebody has an enigma message and it's never been decoded uh that you know that's really based on on things that yeah. i learned right there at bletchley so let's set the foundation a little bit for our listeners because uh bletchley which is now bletchley park it's a museum and heritage heritage attraction uh in england uh let's just talk a little bit about uh the part that that uh, location played in world war ii sure so the, the Germans and the Italians used a machine called the Enigma machine to encode their messages before they sent them in Morse code over, over radio waves. Of course, it was very easy to intercept those radio messages, but not so easy to, to decrypt them and figure out what they meant. Because the Enigma machine, the four rotor version, had 154 million, million, million different settings, which means if you tried out a different setting every second, starting with the Big Bang, you still wouldn't be finished all the possible different settings. So, so the allies set up a code breaking, uh, center at Bletchley park, which is just North of London, this old Victorian house. And they built these sort of wooden huts on the grounds for, 
mathematicians and logicians and engineers uh, and what amounted to the world's first computer scientists um, to set up operations to try to break this code. And, and in fact, they did. Um, they were able to, to decrypt a lot of messages during the war. And, and a lot of people say that probably what happened at Bletchley shortened the war by up to two years. So it's really a, a miraculous thing that they could use their ingenuity and everything from mathematics to, to psychology to sort of figure out what was in these messages. And also a remarkable thing that having signed the Official Secrets Act, the thousands of people who worked there kept the whole thing a secret until the mm -hmm. mid-1970s. It was the first time the general public found out about it. Even their own families thought they were working at a factory that was manufacturing radio parts and things like that. So it's just, to me, it's really sort of a double miracle that they, that they broke the code and then that it was kept a secret for so long. I don't think that would ever happen today. Yes, yeah, one thing to keep a secret during the war, but <laughs> to keep it for that long, something entirely different. And, and, and I remember, you know, there was a movie um, about this uh, story as well, Alan Turing uh, and how he was involved in breaking this code and, you know, what the English later did to him, which was sort of horrendous yeah. in terms of, you know, his whole story there. But um, this idea that uh, it had to be kept secret, there were consequences there too, as I recall, because when they found out certain things, they couldn't disclose them without particularly giving away the idea that they'd broken the code. And sometimes yeah. they had to let things happen that were detrimental to lives and so forth for their effort. Yeah. And of course, you know, that, that film, which is, it's a good film, uh, the imitation game, right. I think it's called. And it, it, um, right. it sort of compacts what, what really happened. Right. Everything that happens in that film really happened, but not all of it happened in that one hut with that one small group of people, but they, they certainly intercepted a lot of intelligence um, and then it was up to people much higher up the chain than they were to decide which of that intelligence was going to be actionable and which they were going to have to, to not take steps on. And yes, there were times when they had to allow ships to be torpedoed. They had to allow uh, bombs to be dropped uh, because if they, you know, if the Germans found out that they'd broken the code, um, mm -hmm. then of course they just would have found a different way to encode their messages and they'd been right back at square run one, but, but they were hugely helpful, especially in, um, uh, setting up the landings at, at Normandy for D-Day, you know, sort of they, the other big part of the equation was sending false intelligence back to the Germans so that, mm -hmm. um, they could sort of mislead them in that they did that throughout the war in, in a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, there there were there were times when they just had to say we have this piece of intelligence, but it's too dangerous for us to to take any action on it. So before we get into the story here a little bit, um, I'm just curious, given the other novels you've written, what did you do differently, if anything, to kind of prepare yourself to write a thriller? Did you did you create an outline <laughs> with beats? Did you come up with uh, all your characters first and your and, and figure out your what if to the very mm -hmm. end, and then just sit down and go or what? You know, I'm not usually an outliner, but I did find that I did a little more outlining for this, uh, this book than for others that I've done. One of the things I, I realized looking back on it is I think I learned about creating a thriller, not so much from, I mean, I have read Robert Ludlum and, and Frederick mm -hmm. Forsyth and, uh, and others, but it was watching the films of Albert Hitchcock, I think, that taught me about how to how to structure a thriller. And one thing I learned from him is you you alternate these action sequences with sort of quieter sequences. And as you get farther and farther, closer and closer to the end of the film or of the book, 
these action sequences come closer and closer together. So as I was working on this novel, I had a pretty good idea of what those action sequences were going to be. That was kind of the part that I outlined. It was the part that was in between that I sort of discovered as I went. How am I going to get from one one place to the to the other? Uh, it was like there was a chain of islands, and I knew I wanted to be on each island, but I had to build a new boat every time I left one island to go go to the other. And I knew my two main characters, this small town librarian and this professional assassin who's lived his life in the shadows, who get thrown together on this adventure. I knew them pretty well before I started. But there are a lot of other characters in the book who sort of grew out of the necessity of the plot. And when you're writing a thriller, you find yourself often needing a character who has, uh, to quote Liam Neeson, a very particular set of skills. Um, so for instance, at one point I found, okay, I need an art historian. I'm in a situation where I need to have an art historian. Well, I had this minor character at the beginning of the book who's a college professor. So why not make her an art historian? And then she can, she can be part of the team. Um, and then there was one other character who, who came into the book also out of that, that same situation. I said, I need somebody who knows about rare books and who knows about forgeries and ideally who lives in North Carolina. Uh, and I thought about trying to create a character. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. I already know somebody who, who fits that description. And it's, it's Peter Byerly, who was the hero of my first novel, The Bookman's Tale. Um, so Peter comes back in this book. He's not a major character. He's a pretty minor character. Uh, but for fans of The Bookman's Tale, they'll, they'll be able to find out what he's up to about 20 years after that book took place. So it was fun to see how, the, how those smaller characters grew out of, of the necessities of the plot as the story started to unfold for me. Yeah. And, and speaking of uh, the characters, uh, you mentioned Patton uh, and Nemo, who's the assassin. You throw them together very early yeah. on. In fact, the, the, the first line in the book, uh, it wasn't just the bullet passing by Patton's ear that concerned her. I thought, well, that's pretty good first first line. <laughs> you know, you know, that's not the thing that's most concerning to you <laughs> is a bullet going. But then very soon after uh the assassin uh comes in, Nemo, and you can't tell for a while whether, you know, what he's about or who's who he's chasing, but both of these characters end up chasing something and having people chase them. And and I thought that was an interesting way to set up a thriller because usually you got to chase somebody's being chased or somebody's chasing something, but here you got both. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think I learned from Hitchcock again is that often the protagonist is completely on their own in that they're not only being chased by the bad guys, they're being chased by, by the good guys too, by law enforcement. I mean, you think of North by Northwest where Cary Grant has been framed for murder. And so, you know, the, the, Americans are out to get him and the Russians are out to get him too, because they think he's a spy, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. that, that accomplishes a lot of things. First of all, it just ramps up, up the tension and the excitement level because, but it also, it means it gives the protagonist an opportunity to be clever and to solve mm -hmm. the problems themselves, uh, rather than just going to the police and saying, Hey, there's a bad guy shooting at me. You know, they, they when when they're out there on their own like that, it, it makes it a much more interesting situation. Yeah, and in this case, they are, um, you know, they're sort of a quest that they they end up on. I don't want to give it away too much about that, but but at the same time, um, you know, they're dealing with the villains, and uh, and at times they're also being hunted down by every uh, law enforcement officer in Europe. So so they've kind of got it coming at them from all sides. 
Yeah, no, I, I took it to my cabin one weekend and read it pretty quickly. Um, but I think your your publicist or maybe Publishers Weekly, they, they can hit it on the head without you giving away too much. They say this prose mashup of National Treasure and Indiana Jones is fun, escapist, fair. And so you get this idea, you got the Germans involved, you got a World War II scene, you got uh, they're chasing something. Um, this idea of alchemy comes in, this... Uh, uh, you know, I didn't know much about alchemy, but uh, you taught me a little bit in the book about uh, tur- turning base metals into gold, and the Germans apparently were after that idea, right? Yeah, you know, um, one of the one of the villains in this book uh, that I do flash back to World War II at times, and the and the main character in that flashback is a um, is a young man who ends up as an assistant to um, to Heinrich Himmler. Uh, and we know as far as bad guys goes, you, you, you can't get a whole lot worse than, than Himmler. Um, but I, I was fascinated when I was, you know, I read a lot of articles about books and libraries and I'd read this book, this article about, uh, the fact that Himmler had this huge collection of books on, um, things occult, all sorts of, you know, bizarre things from witchcraft to alchemy to, you know, aliens and, you know, you name it. And, uh, that this, this collection had somehow ended up in the library of the Czech Republic uh, in Prague. And so I thought, well, you know, it'd be nice to send some characters to Prague. I, I, <laughs> I actually went to Prague while I was working on the book by chance. I wasn't going there to, to, to do research, yeah. but I made sure to, to go and visit that library. And, um, but, uh, you know, ha- having, ha- discovering all the sort of weird things that, that Himmler was interested in, um, gave me an opportunity to kind of focus down on 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 one thing, um, Rob. You know, because you can, as far as being a villain, you can go on and on and on and on with with him, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and that was that was kind of fun. So it was it was interesting to to discover, uh, you know, in addition to doing things like you know coming up with the idea for the Holocaust and things like that, that he he had this side of of this fascination with with the occult and. You know, you start to realize that that movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark are, are not that far off of things that actually <laughs> happened. You know, they, they the Nazis mm-hmm. really did have that. The, some of the some of the uh, leaders really did have that obsession with with um, the supernatural, if you will. Well, I won't give away the twist, which I really enjoyed uh, in the book, and also uh, you know, learned a few things too. It looks like you did a little research as well, and uh, even though you're writing a thriller, because you get you bring in. Uh, not in encyclopedia form, but just uh, you bring in a lot of facts uh, that are related to that time period that were, that also added some interest to the novel. Yeah, I mean, there was there was certainly a lot. First of all, a lot of research um, with regards to Bletchley and with the breaking of the code. My wife and I have been to Bletchley mm-hmm. two or three times now, and um, you know, some of it, learning the details of how they did that, and then figuring out how to incorporate that into a plot in such a way that. I, as a non-world famous mathematician, can can write about, <laughs> and and my readers, as presumably most of them are not world right. famous mathematicians, can understand. Uh, so yeah. so there was that, but also just um, being at Bletchley, sort of sort of feel like, you know, what did the place feel like? What did these this big machine that they called the bomb that was used to sort of help mm. crack the code? They've they've recreated it at, at Bletchley now. You can go see a a, a rebuilt version of it uh you know i wanted to know what did what did that sound like what did it smell like what's it feel like to be in a room with one of those things that's chunking along trying out all these different different possible um combinations 
to break the code. So there was that. And then, you know, then there was also the research about, um, about Himmler and his, his movements and his, uh, his fascinations. And, you know, I had him do and say a lot of things that he actually did and say, but I also created, um, this character, this sort of, um, this young German who, who becomes his assistant, uh, who's a fictional character. And that allowed me to kind of get out of the office and, and, you know, see somebody out, you know, requisitioning, quote unquote, requisitioning, really stealing, um, you know, rare books for Himmler's collection and, and, you know, sort of um, doing the things that, that Himmler had, the horrible things that Himmler had sort of taught him to do, but you, we get to see it in action with this young man rather than just a man sitting behind a desk Mm -hmm. signing orders, you know? Um, So, so while that character was fictional, um, the ways in which he behaved uh, very unfortunately are not fictional. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I think we've sufficiently piqued our uh, reader's interest for the book. Uh, You've got a little reading you're going to do for us, I believe. Uh, uh, you can set it up unless it's from the beginning and you just want to jump um, in. I, I think I'm going to read from, from the beginning because I think it gives a sense yeah. of, of what I was talking about. And you you know, you know, mentioned that first sentence about how, how we find mm-hmm. out that uh, that our main character, Patton Harcourt, who is just at home on a Sunday morning, uh, finds herself in a, a, an unusual situation. <laughs> it wasn't just the bullet passing by Patton's left ear that concerned her. After all, she had sustained gunfire before, even been hit once, if you could call a graze on the forearm that barely left a scar a hit. No, what worried Patton was the sound this bullet made, or rather the sound this bullet didn't make. Every bullet that had ever traveled near her had brought with it the distinctive crack of an object in supersonic motion. But this bullet merely hissed quietly as it crossed the kitchen before embedding itself in her refrigerator. This bullet was subsonic. This bullet didn't come from a confused deer hunter or some nut whose idea of target practice was taking pot shots at her fence posts. Such things did happen at the lonely end of Lone Pine Road, just outside the town of Alta Vista. In her experience, though, only one type of marksman went to the trouble of ensuring his rounds were subsonic and therefore nearly silent. This bullet had been fired by a professional assassin, and he was not likely to miss twice. Patton thought all this in the split second it took her to drop to the floor behind the kitchen island. The second round exploded the bag of flour on the counter, filling the air with white dust, the perfect cover, she thought. Most women who suddenly came under fire in the middle of a Sunday morning bake would be terrified, or panicked, or at the very least shocked. A woman like Patton Harcourt, with her particular history, might also be laid low by anxiety, or even kicked in the gut by a flashback. But Patton felt none of these things. Patton felt angry. She had been making chocolate ganache-filled profiteroles like the ones she'd seen on the Great British Baking Show last week, and if they turned out, she planned to take a batch to Jasper. Now she lay on the floor listening to the mixer overbeating her shoe pastry and thinking of the ruined profiteroles and of Jasper waiting for her visit while she spent her day dealing with a sniper. She flipped onto her back for a moment, looking at the way the mid-morning sun flickered through the cloud of flour. Even though it reminded her of the sunlight filtering through the dust on that day ten years ago, she felt no panic, no anxiety, only cool under fire as another round hit the fridge, no doubt burying itself in the leftover meatloaf. That was no great loss, but she'd just spent $1,200 on the fridge, and she doubted that the warranty covered gunshot wounds. <laughs> I love that line, too. 
<laughs> a warranty does not cover gunshot wounds. Um, so uh, I've got this uh, question that relates to um, the fact that you're releasing more than one novel um, th th this fall. And I'm just curious about how that came about and, uh, you know, um, what the challenges are of doing yeah. that. Yeah. So I had, you know, I had three books that came out in two weeks um, because one of them had been scheduled for that time and the other two had been delayed because of various issues with COVID. So, so I had this novel that we're talking about came out on the 6th of September. And then on the 20th of September, I had two other books come out. Um, one was a, is a new middle grade book. I, you know, I'd written a lot of plays for children, um, back in, you know, I did that for about 10 years and those plays had been done all over the world. And, uh, but I really missed writing for kids and my agent said, well, try middle grade. And so I, I this is the first book in a trilogy for middle graders. It's a book called the book of the seven spells about four kids who discover a magical library. And that book's being brought out by a fairly small publisher and their biggest, um, customer base is school libraries and school libraries just stopped buying books during COVID. And so that sort of knocked them back on their heels and they had to kind of regroup. So it, that slowed that, that book down. And then the other book uh, that came out on the same day is a book called Lewis Carroll formed by faith, which is an academic uh, study, a biography of, of Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland um, sort of centered on his religious life. Um, and that's being brought out by the University Press of Virginia. And again, university presses sort of got kicked on their back heels during during COVID because, uh, you know, their boards are made up of, of university professors who were busy trying to figure out how do we teach classes now, you know. Um, so in the end, what, what should have been three books probably coming out, you know, at least sort of six months apart from each other, uh, all came out right about the same time. And I've talked to other authors who've had similar kind of um, experiences. It's been it's been a strange time in, in publishing, but it's nice to see them all out there. Um, it certainly is making yeah. for a busy fall for me. I, uh, I kind of have to, every time I walk into a room, go, all right, which book am I talking about tonight? Uh, oh, there, there's your <laughs> yeah. children in the audience. Okay. That's probably, probably not the academic book that, you know, um, but it's been fun to actually be able to go back out. Uh, unlike with my last novel, Escaping Dreamland, you know, when all of our events were, were virtual. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've done some virtual events, which, which is great. I mean, last night I, I was interviewed by somebody who was in a hotel room in Perth, Australia, uh, for a bookstore that's in upstate New York. So you know, that, you that's go. fun to there do, but it's really nice to be able to be back out in person for a lot of events as well. Yeah. So, uh, listeners here, check out those other books as well. Um, a couple of more writing life questions here. Um, actually before that, I've got this question. Which of these characters, because you have a lot of characters in the book, uh, I like to ask this now of authors, is surprised you the most? That is, uh, maybe they didn't have a big role at um, first, but then they... <laughs> so that's a tricky question to answer without giving things away, but I'll, I'll say okay, this. All right. There are some right, well, big don't, don't... twists in this book, like you right. expect in a thriller. There right. are those sudden yeah. reversals of fortune. And there is a there is a character who is involved in one of those sudden reversals of fortune. Okay. All right. And I didn't realize this character was going to be involved in that uh, until right before it happened. And I thought, ah, that's the person who is going to be involved in this this moment. Okay. So I, I, right. found I, that won't, I, won't I won't give that away. Yeah. I know who you're I know who you're yeah. talking about. Uh, so uh, yeah. So you, you just weren't sure that that person was going to have a villainous role until much later. You just never know. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, yeah, you have to go back and make sure that that what you've written up to that point isn't contradicted by, um, you know, what happens in that moment. Uh, um, and at the same time that you've, you know, that you've given the 
the readers enough hints so that they they think you're playing fair, but not so many hints that that they see it coming. I mean, I think the reader of a thriller wants to be surprised. They they want to mm-hmm. guess what's going to happen, but they also, in a way, they want to be wrong because then there's the fun of the surprise. You know, if their guess was, exactly. was not right. <laughs> So we have a lot of uh, folks that listen who are also writers and looking for advice from time to time. And since you've written a lot of different um, you know, types of books, uh, now you've written this thriller. Anything you can share, some things you learned maybe uh, about writing thrillers that uh, you hadn't really focused on as much before? Well, you know, again, I think when I look back on it, um, I, I learned so much from, uh, I, I would say if you want to write a thriller, go watch about five Alfred Hitchcock movies and then read the <laughs> book of interviews with him and Francois Truffaut uh, because he mm-hmm. is so good at explaining how you structure a thriller, um, how how you create tension. I mean, he's a very famous story that he tells about, about two people sitting at a table having a, a conversation about nothing particularly important. Uh, and you film that conversation for five minutes and that makes a very dull piece of film. But if the audience knows and the characters do not know that underneath that table is a bomb that's going to go off in five minutes, <laughs> now it's a very tense scene, right? And so yeah. so an, another thing about thrillers is, uh, I mean, this is true of all novels, but especially thrillers, is it's very much about the management of information. When mm-hmm. do you tell information? When do, when do you let that information out? When does the reader know? When does the character know? What information does the reader know that the character doesn't know? I mean, if, 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 the reader, if the reader knows that the character is walking into a dangerous situation, but the character doesn't know that, then the, the reader feels a different type of tension. So there's a, there's a lot of information management that, that goes on. And, 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 I, and if you do it right, then you can build those moments um, when, when there's the big surprise. Uh, and then the other thing is, I think, and I don't know if it was Hitchcock or somebody else who said this originally, I can't really take credit for it, but you know, a good way to write in general, and a, certainly a good way to write thrillers, is to um, put your characters in a situation and then say to yourself, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And then make that thing happen. And then let your characters deal with it. So when, when I was, when this book was, you know, just about ready for submission, I'd, I'd finished the manuscript and I'd reworked it for a while. And uh, it was right when we had the, the first COVID lockdown. And so we were at home and sort of feeling like, what shall we do? Let's read some books. And so we sat on the back porch and I read the whole manuscript to my wife aloud. I'd never done that before. We really enjoyed doing it. And she's such a great critic and she's she's great at catching little things, but also at, at sort of overall um, commentary. And she said this brilliant thing. She said, you know, I think the last, 30 pages of the book for the protagonists were a little bit too easy. That was all she said. It didn't, she didn't, she didn't have to give me a lot of detail. I knew exactly what she meant. It was a great comment because what it meant that I got to do is I got to go back and work through every one of those scenes and go, what could go wrong? What could happen that would cause them a lot of trouble and then make that thing happen and then see how it played out. And it gave me opportunities to, create more tension. It gave me, it even gave me opportunities to create humor in certain places. Um, and it made it much more, you know, much more fun and much more readable. So I guess, you know, that's, that's another one of the things that I've learned about, 
about writing in general, about writing thrillers in particular, is you know don't be nice to your characters. Um, ha- have stuff go wrong, and and have them make a great plan and then have it all fall apart. <laughs> exactly, ratchet up that tension in, in Act Three. If Act Three is your third yeah. act, just make yeah. it make it make it more difficult uh, as you go. But I think it, it was Stephen King. He's the one who puts the character in the in the most difficult beginning situation. And then the rest of the novel, they're trying to work their way out of it. <laughs> you know, put it, put them in a car with a rabid dog right, outside right, and see yeah. if they can get out of the car, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, so, all right, well, look, this, this has been great. Um, uh, you uh, releasing three books. I'd usually, I'd usually ask somebody, you know, what's their next book, but you've got three <laughs> out at the moment. You're probably kind of busy just marketing these I'm three, I'm kind of right? busy on these three. I mean, I do have a couple of projects <laughs> on the, that are, that are on pause at the moment. And when, uh, when we get through, this fall, I'll go back and see which of those appeals to me in the moment. And, and that's the direction I'll go. So. All right, Charlie, look, well, appreciate you coming back and uh, sharing uh, your story, The Enigma Affair and talking writing with Charlotte's Podcast. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, well, that's a good segue into uh, Act 3 here because we have a community blog post we're going to talk about. Uh, Sarah, you want to introduce it? Yeah, so um, this is by Kara Bertawia, and it's called When You Think of When You Think You Know Everything, Think Again. Um, Kara grew up in a straight-laced Southern family, but she was always fascinated by casinos. Um, she says that in her 20s, when she was on a summer hiatus from teaching in Charlotte, she went to California and became a dealer at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, even though her mo- mother highly disapproved of that. Um, I guess her mom called it a place so bad it has sin in the middle. <laughs> um, eventually, Kara succumbed to pressure from the family. She returned east and took a high-tech job in Boston. She also began working on her MFA in writing at Emerson. Her goal was to write a realistic thriller about casino life from the perspective of an experienced table games dealer. And she's always amazed that normal and very intelligent people become absolutely clueless in the casino. They repeat superstitious nonsense and no amount of logic can change their position, though maybe her novel will. So she's definitely bringing some interesting life experience to that story. Yeah, exactly. I love how mother said that uh, casino has sin in the middle <laughs> of it, right? Don't go work there daughter yeah she sounds like a good southern woman (laughs) (laughs) all right well let's listen to uh car's uh blog post as performed by her and then we'll talk about it my name is kara bertoya and my articles when you think you know everything think again when i was younger and working at caesar's tahoe players would sit down at my game and invariably the following question would come up what's a nice girl like you doing working in a joint like this I would always look around me, where there were rows of dealers like me, fresh-faced, recent college grads trying to postpone adulthood as long as we could. And Lake Tahoe, America's all-year playground, was a great place to do it. I spent two decades working as a croupier. I didn't realize it at the time, but every day was research. When I decided to write a thriller about casinos, 
I thought writing a novel would be a breeze because I knew everything about casinos. I'm here to tell you that I learned painfully that knowing your subject is such a small part of the process. When I left Lake Tahoe, I went to work for Princess Cruises. My novel, Cruise Quarters, is about my experiences living and working on a cruise ship. I met my Scottish husband aboard. When we left ships, we moved to Palm Springs, just as casinos were opening up in California. My team members were a fascinating group of people from all over the world. Everyone had a different story about how they got in the business. Most involved escaping tyrannical governments. I knew I had to tell their story, especially since I worked at a Native American casino. I had so many stories of actual crimes, I decided to write a thriller. I had to research historical events to make sure I got it right. How did Native Americans win the right to open casinos on their reservations? And what was the historical timeline? Luckily, my husband was also a pit boss, so he could answer my technical questions about money laundering and odds. I had to learn about police procedure because I wrote a mystery. I spent many hours on the internet researching Native Americans and the proper use of capitalization. If you think rules like when to capitalize the word tribes as it applies to Native Americans is simple, just Google it. I also had to research the dialogue for some of my foreign characters to make sure it sounded authentic. Here's the tip, read your whole novel out loud and record it to see how it sounds. I spent the next year working with my wonderful editor, Casey, to make my novel as good as I could. At the end of that process, we were both so burnt out that she suggested that I send it to six people who had never seen it to read. My cousin was great. He pointed out when a character's age wasn't clearly defined. A pit boss clarified one of my gambling calculations. My friend, a college professor, corrected some punctuation mistakes. They pointed out mistakes that we had missed. They even discovered a plot hole that needed to be filled. Even with an editor, those readers made my book so much better. Here's another tip. Even if you think you know how to spell a place or a brand, always double check. I was sure I knew the way to spell Louis Vuitton, Imagine my surprise when I learned it was Louis Vuitton with an I. Be careful about the names of companies you use. Some companies are very serious about their trademarks. I bought the best punctuation book, period, and referenced it every day. Keeping your verbs in the right tense is just one of the many challenges you will face. Correcting all the mistakes in a novel are mind-boggling. So before you query, if you have the resources, hire an editor. Also make sure that you have people that share your taste in books, read your story. Does it flow? Does the plot make sense? And are the characters engaging? Then be prepared to rewrite. I really do like the rewriting process. That is when comments get funnier, dialogue becomes sharper, and descriptions become vivid. Let me leave you with this advice. Write the book that you want to read because you will be reading it over and over. But the reward for seeing your book in print makes all the hard work worthwhile. All right. So uh, I know Mark, uh, being a, a professor of English, um, 
have some thoughts about this? Well, um, I like the way she talks about drawing on your familiarity with a particular world, whether in this case it's casinos or the life on a cruise ship. But I like the point that she makes that uh, that's just the start of the process and that even though you might know that world really well, um, it's not the same thing as writing a novel. Um, so the two go together. The book I recommended today, Outside the Wire, is about uh, written by one who knows the world of uh, counterterrorism really well. But that does not necessarily mean that he's going to be a good writer. You have to learn how to take that expertise and then turn it into something uh, that readers would enjoy uh, experiencing in the vicarious way we experience literature. So uh, I think our points are really uh, well made. I also think the point of uh, getting people to look at things, sometimes people will catch things other people won't catch, um, whether it's something simple like a grammatical or punctuation error of some sort, or whether it's some kind of plot hole or um, other mistake. It's always good to get more people to look at it just to help um, catch things. So yeah, good for her. Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think she made a lot of great points. I mean, it just goes to show that research is so important, even with someone like her who has a lot of lived experience that she's bringing to this and a lot of anecdotes that she can take from real life and things that she's heard from real people she met in the casinos. She still had to do so much research to make this novel come to life and feel accurate. Um, and she also made a great point about sort of the the number and the different types of people she reached out to for feedback along the way. She, it sounds like, worked with a developmental editor and maybe also a professional copy editor. And she had a number of different friends read for her, um, which I think is so important. I mean, even if an editor is, is brilliant and great at their job, they're still just one person and they're going to bring a necessarily limited perspective on things. Um, and they are they aren't going to know everything and they also are going to be looking at the world and at your writing through a very specific lens. And so I think the more perspectives you can get from different people, the better and reaching out to people who maybe come from different walks of life or who like reading different sorts of material can be helpful too, to give you a variety of perspectives on your work. So um, more feedback is almost always going to be better in my experience. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, those, both those points. I mean, the idea of getting this, the person who does the same kind of thing, read it, uh, you're you're going to miss the opportunity to have people with different life experiences see your work and, and suggest something to you. Or in this case, with different uh, skill sets come, I mean, like they had, you know, a, a professor friend who caught some things that maybe somebody else wouldn't catch, but somebody else with a certain level of experience caught something about the plot and helped, helped fill a plot point. Uh, so even with an editor, she said, you know, readers from different walks of life will you know, help make your work better and help you spot things. And I love the fact that she's got, you know, who has a pit boss for a husband, right? I mean, if you're going to write, if you're going to write a novel set in a casino, being able to bounce something off a, a pit boss sounds, sounds kind of fun. And I feel like this is a good example for me. Um, so there's a lot of threads that run through what we're hearing uh, through our community blog and through some of the authors we interview about how to do certain things in writing craft. And, I just think the more you hear them and the more you hear the nuanced discussions of them, um, it's really one of the reasons I like doing this podcast because, um, hey, I forget things, right? But you hear them again and again, and they start to sink in and, and make sense. So some of the things that really sink in you know, here with this idea is um, 
knowing your subject matter is critical, but that's just the start. You've got to figure out what's the best way to tell this story. Whose point of view am I going to be in? Who's going to be the teller? Who's going to be the narrator? How are we going to bring some life to this thing so that it's fun and engaging and yet show the reader that you have done your research? That's kind of a balance in the market. Yes, it is. And one of the tricks that we can trick us up, trip us up, is sharing our stories with other people who have the same expertise that we do. One of the things that people do uh, is we communicate in shorthand. We use uh, certain terms that, uh, so you might be writing a novel and you're talking about uh, litigation and there might be somebody who doesn't even have any idea what litigation is. Is that some kind mm-hmm. of like joint problem? I'm not sure. What is a litigation? Um, yeah, what is a litigation? So, um, you know, we, we might be, we might in in the world of uh, uh, casinos, we know what a pit boss is, but I might be thinking about it has something to do with barbecue. Um, uh, I think was well, that is that the same thing as a pit master? You know, I like barbecue. Uh, I didn't know she was writing about um, barbecue. I remember, well, um, so you know, just share it with people who don't who don't share that expertise, so that um, simple little things like saying pit boss and assuming everybody knows what it means, um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't make that mistake. Um, so to, to your point, Sarah, share it with everybody, with people from different backgrounds who don't always know the same thing um, so that you don't get into that little inner circle, that closed ecosystem where everybody knows the same thing and thinks the same way and has the same experiences. That's not a good idea. There was one other thing she said in there about, and we've heard people talk about writing the book you love to read, which is good advice, but you think on, on, on the surface, well, that just means because, you know, it'll make you more excited to write about something. But, but she takes it a step further, and it's because you're going to read the dang thing a hundred mm-hmm. times, so you better, you better, you better like what uh, you're yeah, writing. Yeah, I always say right? when I'm directing a master's thesis or involved with a dissertation or something like that, I tell students, uh, write about something you're interested in because no matter how much you, uh, you think you love this topic, by the time you're done with your dissertation, you're going to hate it. Um, so, uh, you know, you might as well start off, uh, having it, uh, weighted on the side that you like it so that you, it'll take you a little longer to grow to hate it because eventually you will <laughs> just part of the nature. Of the beast. And, and I will say this point about correcting all the mistakes in a novel is mind boggling. Um, I, I read, you had recommended, I think in a previous episode, Mark Catrick's book, Secret Lives. And, uh, he sent me an arc of that book uh, back in uh, May, and I read it because uh, we talked about it on the podcast in June. Um, and I found something. I mean, it had been through the editorial process. It had been through copy editors as a publisher. And I found something where you know, the pronoun changed. And, and they, somebody that was saying something was not the somebody that was supposed to be saying something. And I emailed him. I said, Mark, is it too late? And he said, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, it's amazing. How'd you, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm just re- I'm not reading it for that kind of thing. I'm reading it as a reader. And that's when you see it. And the problem sometimes when you've read it 100 times or you got the copier, you got the proofer, they're trying to read through it in sort of a business-like fashion. And your brain is tricky. It'll, you'll, fr- you won't see things, right? I mean, I mean, have y'all done that All before? the time. <laughs> yeah, that, that's so true. Yeah. 
I think one thing that helps, I mean, the best thing you can do for that is to have other people and as many people as possible read it. But there are other little tricks you can do too, like, um, like having, there are programs that you can use that will read your writing out loud to you, like a mm. kind of computerized voice. So hearing it out loud, sometimes you catch those things when you're kind of blind to them on the page or changing up the page visually in some way, like putting it in dark mode or changing the font of the, the document, something like that. Sometimes we'll just kind of jolt you out of being used to seeing it a certain way and you can pick up on things that you didn't pick up on before. Um, but yeah, definitely getting outside input is, is the most helpful for that, I think. All right. Well, that's all good stuff. We'll, uh, we're going to jump now to uh, Act 4, which is our takeaways and what's coming next uh, right after this. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, uh, Sarah, takeaways. Um, well, it was a pleasure to have uh, our interview with Charlie Lovett on the podcast. Um, I also really enjoyed talking about Kara Bertoya's blog post. I think the point she made about uh, the importance of research and rewriting are things that we've kind of come back to again and again in different discussions on the podcast, which just goes to show how essential they are and how much of a mainstay of the writer's life they are. You know, it's not just, you think of writing sometimes as like the writing the first draft when you're kind of creating the words on the page, but there's so much that happens both before and after that. That's just as important. Um, so it's good to kind of dig into those parts of the process and celebrate them too. And it's been a real pleasure having Mark co-hosting with us. I've so enjoyed hearing about your work and your, you know, varied life experiences and your journey. And I'm, I'm super excited to read, you know, the stuff you have coming out about Roosevelt and hopefully that Roald Dahl book will come together. So lots of good stuff. And thank you for being here with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And Sarah, it's good to, uh, I've seen your picture all, uh, <laughs> Uh, on the various things, but it, now you know, I still haven't actually met you, but I feel closer. This is a step like closer. <laughs> a step in that direction. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, Mark, you've now, this is your third podcast uh, with us in Alaska uh, that we're putting out here. Uh, you've been on before. We had a year in thing where you talked about uh, your favorite books of the year, but you can almost add podcasts to, to your uh, resume now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I still find it funny when people refer to me as a blogger because I think, well, I write a blog, but I don't really think of myself as a blogger. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, but you know, I think that what you all do and, and with my uh, minimal uh, contributions here um, – uh, with your Charlotte Readers podcast, it really adds something to the whole culture of uh, the the writing and reading community, not just in Charlotte, but beyond Charlotte. Uh, it's something to be proud of. I was a little worried when you hit 300. I was a little afraid that you were saying, okay, well, been there, done that. <laughs> Time to move on. Um, but I'm glad you've uh, moved on in this more interesting direction of bringing other voices in and other perspectives. Um, so I hope you uh, decide that uh, uh, when you do something, like when you reach 400, don't stop. Just keep going. That's right. I appreciate that. And, and your, your story, Charlotte Blog, is a big contribution as well to the, to the community with what you do. And, Mark, when it ever feels like it's uh, getting overwhelming, uh, do what I did. Instead of uh, 
quitting, add a couple more bloggers to your story, Charlotte blog. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it adds more excitement because it's really been fun having, uh, Sarah and Hannah, and then now bringing in, uh, you know, you and Alyssa as guest host, and we're going to do some more of that. And I, th- I think, uh, uh, you're going to mention just a second, Sarah, with what's coming next, but we're going to be, uh, bringing on, uh, Misha Lazaro as a co-host. She's actually teaching at it, uh, UNC Charlotte now, I believe. And, uh, so we're going to have her as a ride-along guest and talk about her book. So with that set up, uh, Sarah, what's coming next? Yeah, so we're going to have Misha with us next time, which we're excited about. Um, her new novel is called Man-Made Constellations, and it's a modern-day literary fiction love story that explores how taking to the open road teaches lessons that can't be learned at home. So we'll hear some about that from her. And we also feature Truth is a Flightless Bird by Akbar Hussein, which is a character story setting against the backdrop of Obama's historic visit to Nairobi. And we're going to have more tips from our community blog and some more book recommendations for you. Yeah, so it should be fun. And... Uh... Uh, again, Mark, thanks for uh, joining us uh, in these episodes. It was my pleasure, and I just wanted to uh, mention that as we are coming to the traditional holiday season with Thanksgiving and Hanukkah and Christmas and whatnot, um, you know, we all focus nowadays, Landis, on your uh, deadly declarations, but hey, that's not the only thing you've written. <laughs> um, uh, so and maybe this is a good time to... Uh, to reintroduce uh, readers to your uh, your funny uh, Christmas uh, <laughs> stories, which uh, draw on um, your expertise as a lawyer, but also draw on some of the stories that we associate with uh, with the holiday season. So, um, yeah. so uh, I hope that. Uh, that people remember that you've also written those books and they're still available and uh, I think you've got some wonderful uh, audio versions of those books as well yeah, so. the audio books are great thank you for mentioning that it should be fun we're even looking at kind of reworking the covers because it's been a while so that'll be fun for the Christmas season and uh, again great stuff looking forward to seeing more at a short blog and uh, Sarah I'll, I'll see you in the next recording phase and uh, mm-hmm. listeners thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us uh, so until next time uh Uh, Read on and write on.